The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Good morning. We're at the, uh, the final uh, class in, in the auditorium today. Um, we're going to break into two smaller groups next week. And one of the studies is going to be Foundations of the Faith, John MacArthur's study that, that David Fromm and Greg Falk are going to present. And then we're going to have another class on, uh, simultaneously on uh, the, the roles and nature of men and women. I think that's the name of it. I haven't actually seen the material yet, but Josh and I will be teaching that class. So it should, that should be interesting. And uh, uh, I think it's right now, it's these, this hallway over here, uh, and, and there are two classes at the end, two classrooms at the end. So, um, so we won't be in here next week. But this week, we're in Deuteronomy 30. You might wonder, how in the world did you get to Deuteronomy 30 from the Mark study? I just, uh, as, as I was studying through Mark, I, I came across this. And uh, it just, it's a very intimate look at Moses' relationship with God and his, his, his relationship with the Israelites. And uh, so I want to I direct you first uh, to, there's a couple of pictures just to look at to get us primed. There's Moses. Um, he's looking out over, over the, into the promised land. He wasn't allowed to go into the promised land. But he, he certainly had been faithful in God's house. He, uh, his relationship with God was pretty amazing. But he had gotten angry, and God said, because of that, you got angry a second time when I told you, and you disobeyed me, you can't go in. And so, the next picture of Moses, there's a, there's a family, this, this is a painting, it's from a family photo of, of Moses and Aaron, that's Aaron the high priest on the right, Moses on the left, and of course God's in the picture, those are his words, so it's a family photo, hey, good morning, there's Aaron, good morning, um, and uh, so... Um, is anybody before we get started in earnest here? That's just a, a little preview here. We're gonna we're gonna look at at the the uh, relationship between God and Moses and and the Israelites and how that's a discipling type of a relationship. All, all of it's discipleship. It's all learning God's word and growing in God's word. But is there, does anybody have any prayer requests? I know Virginia's gonna be out. Her her daughter-in-law is having another of grandchild and she's going to be away for a couple of weeks those babies don't come on schedule so please remember to pay pray for her and her family Aaron's here he's recovering and uh, good to see him this is his first foray out after he he broke his leg his right right leg and uh yeah I want to see that cast on the other leg next week <laughs> yes ma'am Tina's, Tina's dead, and for his salvation, and that these things will, will work out for, for his good, yes. 
Uh, you guys need some, uh, yeah, yeah. Saldi? Yeah, yeah, Michael. Uh, <laughs> baby girl? Very nice. Yeah, praise the Lord. Um, praise the Lord. You know, there's, what, what a life this is, you know. There's a lot to rejoice in. There's also a lot to grieve over. But thankfully, the Lord is in charge of it all. And, and whatever, whatever comes our way, we can be content. And uh, we're thankful for that. So uh, any other prayer requests? Within the last month, die from COVID. Okay, let me, let's, let me pray for us, y'all. And our families, Lord, thank you for today, and thank you for that. Your Your Word reigns sovereign. There's no one above you, Lord. You've You've kept your promises through the ages to today, and and we're so thankful, Lord, that that You've revealed Yourself to us, that You desired to have that relationship with us, and You made it possible in Christ Jesus. Lord, we pray for our family members that don't know You, who uh, Chris and Tina's family, Lord, her father's struggling with the possibility of dying. Father, I pray you, you break into his life and save him, Lord, with the gospel and uh, with your gospel and, and bring him into your kingdom, Lord. And, and uh, we're thankful for the, the new births in our family, Lord. Pray that you, your uh, protection would be on them. Father, that, that the parents would, would be encouraged to raise those children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Father, and those uh, uh, who are we pray for Miss Aldi and, and uh, what she's going through, Lord, and Michael also. Father, your blessings there, peace uh, as the decisions have to be made in recovery for Aldi, Lord. Um, prepare her for, for uh, what's the things that are coming and, and those that love her, Lord. And, and for uh, Virginia's family, Lord, we just thank you for the blessing of their family, that, that, that the birth, and then, but also there's the, those who pass away, Lord. We have to say goodbye to our loved ones in this life. And it's just a reminder, Lord, of your loving kindness. You never leave us or forsake us. You're always going to be with us. You promised it, Lord. Father, make that real to our hearts this morning as we go through the study. And uh, your, your, your life, Father, who you are, will be glorified and praised in the earth. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're looking at Deuteronomy 30, but there's always the setup. So we're going to go back and look at Deuteronomy, start by looking at Deuteronomy 4. Deuteronomy verse 4. And the lovely and gracious Miss Tina will pull, there it is, Deuteronomy 29, 4. 29 verse 4. It's up, I've, I've got, I think we're going to have most of these scriptures on the screen, so you can follow that way. So the Lord, uh, this is Moses speaking to them children of Israel. Now, before we go, re read this. Deuteronomy is a, is a second reading of the law. In other words, it's, it's they're at the promised land. They're about to come in. Moses is going through the covenant again. He's, he's reestablishing or re remaking the covenant that was made at Sinai the, the, with God, God's giving of the law. And, uh, and so it's a second reading of the law. It's another closer look. Moses is older now. God's already told him he can't go into the promised land. And he's helping the, the, the uh, children of Israel 
before they go in. He's talking to them about the loss, and that's what we're going to look at today. And so um, it's kind of amazing what he says here. You know, he's, he's going to turn uh, the, the reins over to Joshua here, and he's going to pass on. And he says, in, 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 he's wrapping things up here in Deuteronomy, and he says, but to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Now, Jesus, Jesus said that. He said, Isaiah well said, that you do not have eyes to see and ears to hear. So what is he talking about? Now, if you, if you look at the, the, his audience, Moses' audience, remember, no one over the age of 20 could come into the promised land. So he's talking to the, the children of Israel at the Red Sea crossing who were 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. Those, they were old enough to remember, and they saw what happened. But he's saying to them now, you don't have, you don't understand. You don't have eyes to see and ears to hear. But they saw that. They saw that, the, the water part. They saw the miracles. They saw the pillar uh, of fire by day and the, uh, by night and the cloud by day. They saw these things. But yet they're being told, you don't have, understand. Now what do you think that means? Why, was, why would Moses say that to them? Okay, well, that's what we're going to look at today, why Moses is, going to, is saying that. So if we jump down to verse 29 in Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us, to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. This is a standalone verse. A lot of people know this, this verse. Um, the secret things. That's, a, you know, the secret thing, the hidden things. They're hidden. Now, this is not the same word in, uh, Psalm, uh, look at Psalm 25, 14, next. Psalm 25, 14 says this, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. And we're at the covenant relationship, the reestablishing of the relationship, the renewing. That's not a renewal, it's just the resetting of it, reminding it, the reminder before they go into the land. But the word friendship in this verse also can be translated to secret. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him. Okay? The secret of the Lord. There's hidden things. There's something hidden that, that people, people don't know about God. Okay? But this is telling us that we can be friends with God. This is, oh, this, this is all adding up to God desires intimacy with us on a big level. And I mean, as, as only God could. He desires intimacy with his creation. And we're going to look at that problem, the problem of why, why there isn't, okay, and how that affects our lives. Okay, so this, this is uh, what these, these verses are pointing to. You don't have eyes to see and ears to hear. That God has this desire. He loves you. He, he loves his creation. He loves everybody. And he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He loves us. This is, they saw the miracles. Just like Jesus and, and his disciples, they, they, they saw him heal people, you know, give sight to the blind. And all they could think about was how much wealth they were going to have in the kingdom and how, how their status in there, there. Okay. So Moses is speaking to them about these things. So here we are today. And we're talking about coming home. They're, they're, they're going into the promised land. They're coming home. 
Okay, this is where God has promised them for hundreds of years. And this is a picture of us coming home. This is not our, our home. This world is not our home, is it? Okay. But we're talking about coming home. And uh, where God is taking us. Okay. And today we're, we're going we're gonna to look at Deuteronomy. And, and heaven and hell are not mentioned here. Directly. It's not directly spoken of in the passage uh, we're going to look at today. This is one of the earliest places in the Bible where also shown there are two destinies for the human race. That there are two destinations, two destinies for the human race. One is blessing and bliss. The other is cursing and destruction. And even though heaven or hell is not mentioned, this is the first place in the Bible that it becomes clear that something like that must be out there. Let me read to you Deuteronomy 30, okay? One of the more important passages in the Bible since, uh, it, it includes one of the more important passages in the Bible since Paul mentioned this, mentions this in Romans 10 when he's talking about salvation. So let's go through it here. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. Verse 2, please. There you go. Oh, verse 6. Oh, I'm going to have to read this right out of Scripture. I thought I put that in there. Um, yeah. Okay. And, retur and, you, and returns to the Lord your God you and your children and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you if your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will take you and the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your, in your fathers when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who, should, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and, and good, death and evil, 
If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the fear of your God will bless you. In the, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to, possess, to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish, that you shall not live long in the land that your God, that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. Okay. That's all 20 verses from Deuteronomy 20. Um, De Deuteronomy 30, excuse me. Um, so how do we understand this chapter? Okay, we, we've talked about it a little bit. Moses, at the end of Moses' life, he's uh, going to hand the Israelites off to Joshua. He's passing on. Uh, he's gonna, not going to enter the promised land. He's going to stay and die in, in, at Mount Nebo. Uh, is Mount Nebo? He's going to stay in, in, uh, across this, the east side of the Jordan. Now, at Mount Sinai, they had entered into the covenant relationship with God. And God said, I will be your God, and you will be my people. This is how I want you to live. He gives them the Ten Commandments. This is how I want you to live. Here are the stipulations of the covenant. And now that Moses is about to pass off the scene and they were renewing the covenant, Deuteronomy is, is a covenant renewal document. That's what's, that's what's going on here. It's, it's the renewal of the covenant. All the things that the children of Israel were supposed to do and supposed to be doing in order to live as the people of God are all laid out for them all laid out. It's a wonderful exposition of the, Ten Command, of, the, of the Ten Commandments. It's a treatise on how to live a godly life. And so, what it, 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 it's what it means to live in, in uh, integrity, lives of justice, what it means to live lives that please God. And at the end of the covenant document in uh, 27 and Verse 28 in particular, God lays out what is referred to here twice in this chapter. Blessings and curses. 28 is where he lays it out. If you obey the covenant, if you're faithful to what I say to you, and you do it, I will bless you in all these ways. I'll do these things for you if you obey me. The beginning of chapter 28 is filled with with Ways in which we would bless, we could bless God by obeying him. But then you get to the last three quarters of chapter 28. There's about 40 verses. And uh, all these terrible things will come upon you, the Lord says, if you disobey me. These curses will come upon you. Um, it's what we read in verse 17 and 18. of, of we, we just read in 17 and 18 of of chapter 30. If your heart turns away 
I declare to you that you shall surely perish. The curses will come upon you. Now the curses are so ferocious. If you look at this list, they're so ferocious. There's, there's no more fearsome chapter in all the Bible according to Don Carson. They're ferocious. They're terrible. The curses are just, are just awesome, awesomely terrible. So you're reading about 10 verses into the curses, and there's still 30 verses left. And you say, I get it. What's going on here? What is going on? Okay. I get the idea. Okay. They're very fearsome and very ferocious, and yet the blessings are astounding. And the blessings always come with the promise of graciousness. Yes, God is gracious. He overlooks sin and he forgives. He does this, he does that, he does these things. These, these blessings are so gracious and seemingly so unconditional and the curses are so ferocious and so obviously conditional. If you do this, you'll be, you'll be destroyed. That they, there are a lot of scholars, there are a lot of people that can't believe that Deuteronomy was written by one person. Okay, one, of the, one of the classic Old Testament professors, F.M. Cross, after reading Deuteronomy, said this, there's no way one person could have possibly written this. He believed the book of Deuteronomy was originally written at the time of King Josiah, when, when there was a lot of prosperity and a lot of hope in Israel. But then, after the exile, after the, the, the catastrophe of the Babylonian exile, everybody looked at that and said, well, that's way too optimistic, what was written in Deuteronomy. So they, they wrote a, a second part of it that talked about the curses. Okay? And Professor Cross believes that afterward, after these things, they looked back and, and, and they said these things, and, and they said somebody slapped it together. Okay? Somebody edited it, and it's just, there's no way okay, that... that uh, all the curses and all the blessings could come. Uh, one person could be that way. Who could be that ferocious and that loving at the same time? Okay. Who could hold, nobody could write anything that would hold together this notion that, that one person could do that. There couldn't be a single coherent understanding of a God who could, who could be like this. Both loving and holy and yet that deadly and gracious. It is the, the, people couldn't see it. But the main point is this. Deuteronomy for, is, uh, for the first time in the biblical narrative, um, as you read right through, makes it extremely clear that there's a tension. This creates a tension. And we're the ones that brought it about. Humans brought it about. We have a holy God we have a God of justice. We have a God that must punish sin, who cannot clear the guilty. And he says that to Moses in Exodus 34. I can't let any sin go unpunished. But at the same time, he's a God of endless love and endless faithfulness and endless forgiveness. And he desires a relationship with us. And it's, it's because of what we are as human beings and because of who Israel is. They're human beings. We're flawed. We're sinful. 
And that creates, at least in this book of Deuteronomy, at this point, a kind of unresolved tension. How is God going to resolve this? Because the question is, how can God, how can this God be the one, on the one hand, faithful to who he is, gracious and loving, and yet faithful to who he is? He hates sin, and he's not going to let any sin go unpunished. Martin Lloyd-Jones did a sermon on revival, and he said, he talked about this, this verse in Exodus 34 when Moses says, I want to see your glory. And God says, no, it'll kill you. But he says, I will hide you in the cleft of, of the rock, and I will let all my goodness pass before you. All my goodness. That's, that's an interesting way of putting it, all my goodness. And then a few verses later, God comes down. Moses is shielded, and it says his goodness passed before Moses. And he declared his name, saying, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I'm very compassionate. I'm, I'm compassionate. I forgive sins down to the fourth generation, but I will in no way clear the guilty. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. This is what's interesting about this. When God says, I'm going to show you all my goodness, he first says, I am forgiving and I must punish every sin. And it seems like a contradiction. But the way the doctor put it is this. Why is it that God must punish every sin? It's because he's so good. He's so good. No good judge will let someone off who was proven to have committed a crime. The reason why God must punish every sin is because he is so good. And on the other hand, why is it that God wants to forgive? Why is it that God wants to love us? He doesn't ever want to let go of us. It's because he's so good. Ah, you say, how in the world could there be a God who is that comprehensively good? How could this God be? He'll have to fudge somewhere along the way. He'll have to say, I'd like for you to obey, but at the end, I'm going to accept you no matter what you do. Or, he'll say, you better obey or I won't let you into heaven. So you either have a God who is good fully in terms of love, but not in terms of holiness. Or, God is fully good in terms of holiness, but not in terms of love. But there's no way that there's a God who is that good, completely good, comprehensively good. There's just no way. How can this be? And that's what the Old Testament scholar, F.M. Cross and others, have said about Deuteronomy. They look at Deuteronomy and say, the blessings are so gracious but the, crosses, the curses are so ferocious that no one could be both. No God could be both of those things. And they, so they, they, they edit it, they slap this whole thing together, and it really doesn't make a lot of sense anyway. Um, but no, no, this is, this is what makes the Bible great right here. This is actually what makes the Bible great. And this, of course, as you know, is the whole basis of the gospel. The Old Testament has an unresolved narrative tension in it. 
This is it. So what is a narrative tension? Narrative tension means you don't know what's going to happen in the future. There are forces at work, and they're, they're at each other. Okay. Some place, somebody said, what is a narrative? So here, here, let's talk about this for a second. Little Red Riding Hood is going through the forest to see her grandmother with some goodies. That's just information. Little Red Riding Hood is going through the forest with goodies to see her grandmother, and the big bad wolf is waiting to eat her up. Now that's a narrative. Now you have what's going to happen in the future. We don't know what's going to happen. Okay. So this, this is the narrative tension that drives the narrative of the Bible all the way up to the cross, what we're looking at here in Deuteronomy. It also drives the book of Deuteronomy. But you say, I guess it doesn't get resolved in Deuteronomy, does it? Well, yes and no. It's a wonderful thing about the Bible. It's, it's just beautiful about, about the Bible. All through the Bible, there's a, uh, a foreshadowing of, of how this is going to get resolved. And it's here. It's included in, in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 30. We're actually we're going to look at that. So let's look at three things Deuteronomy 30 says about the future. Because Moses is talking about the future. He's not going to be there for this. But he's telling the Israelites about their future. There's three things. The first is, in the future, you'll fail to live as you ought. Secondly, God will fix our hearts. And thirdly, and the message of the gospel will go out. Okay, so let's look at the first one. First of all, we, we will all fail. This is one of the most important things about this chapter. So let's look at verse 1. Ha. And notice he says at the second half of that chapter, you, you, and you call to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. He's saying, Moses is saying, they're going to end up being removed from the land. The ultimate curse that's listed in, in, in chapter 28 in the, in the section on curses is you'll be taken out of the land. They'll fail in every way possible, and they'll be taken out of the land. And Moses is saying, you'll remember this. You'll remember I said this when you, you're, you're in the, the land. He's telling them they're going to fail. Okay. Now we should stop here. And, and, and take note, okay? It's, again, Deuteronomy is a wonderful ethical treatise. It's a vision of how to live lives of integrity and lives of justice, okay? Uh, lives, uh, life at its highest level. And it's, it's a wonderful thing. If you, if you read through Deuteronomy, it tells this is, a, this is how you live a, a, a safe life, a good life, caring about God, caring about your fellow men, Okay? So Moses is preaching to them, and it's the first place in the Bible, really, people consider this a, a sermon series by Moses. Okay. And, 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 you know, the world loves motivational speakers, doesn't it? You could, you could almost see this as a motivational speech. And so you know how, how they end the motivational speeches, right? Oh, you can do this. Go. You've got this. You can do this. Yes? But that's not what Moses says, is it? He says, you're going to fail. You will not do 
what I've asked you to do, what God has asked you to do. You won't be able to do it. You can't do it. I'm wasting my breath. That's basically what he's saying. You're going to fail. Well, again, it's not very good motivational speaking, is it? But it is good gospel preaching. It's not all there is to gospel preaching, praise God. But unless you're willing to say this, you are not able to, to do gospel preaching. So what's he saying? He's looking at the Israelites, but beyond that, he's, he's looking at the human race. He's looking at us, at everyone. And he's saying, you know what to do, and you won't do it. You know what you ought to do. This isn't rocket science. If there is a God, you owe him this and you owe him that. He's been good to you. Love your neighbors as yourself. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know it's not crazy. But you know what you should do, and you're not going to do it. So secular philosophers uh, know about this also. They ask the question, why can't we be good? Social theorists and, and, and others have been writing books about how we should live. There's a, lot, there's a big industry, right, about that? Everybody's working like crazy to tell human beings how they should live, but they're forgetting one thing. Everybody basically knows how to live, but they won't do it. They can't do it. Nobody has the strength to do it. It's the biggest mystery of the human race, and it's the biggest problem the human race has. So why do we proliferate all these, all these books telling people how they ought to live? They know how they ought to live. They just won't do it. They can't do it. It's impossible. Our problem is we can't solve the fact that human beings know this. They know how they should act. They know how they should live. And they can't. And they won't. And we haven't figured it out yet. There's a case study about a young man who was very angry at his mother. And he didn't realize how angry he was at his mother, it was, but it was distorting his life. And through counseling, he came to see how his life was dominated by his anger at his mother. And that seemed to, to matter. It seemed to matter to the, to the young man when he heard this counseling. But the question is, did it help him? Did it really help him? How... You know, how do you help him forgive his mother? If his life is so distorted by his resentment towards his mother, how do you help him forgive his mother? The counselor's first response to that was, there isn't anything I can do. Hopefully now, he will understand his anger and not be as driven by it. But if you guys are looking for a, a changed heart, you're looking in the wrong department. Because psychologists... They can't help you do what you ought. They can, they can show you what you ought to do, but they can't help you do what you ought to do. Francis Schaeffer used to talk about it, uh, an illustration when he was preaching to unbelievers who didn't like judgment. He, would, he, would, has, he had this illustration he, he used. Um, maybe you've heard it. Romans 2 says that uh, Gentiles, the, the pagans who don't know the, the law of God, they don't know the Bible, but they still live 
and have in their conscience a certain knowledge of how they should live. And God holds them responsible for what their conscience tells them. Schaefer says, imagine if you have a, an invisible recorder tied around your neck. And whatever you said to somebody else, when you said to them, you ought, it recorded what you said about how others should live. When you tell others how to live, it recorded your moral standards that you impose on other people. And Schaefer says, what God can do on Judgment Day is this. He'll stand in front of people and he'll say, this is Francis Schaefer now, talking, speaking, uh, using, you know, speaking for God. He says, you never heard about Jesus or read the Bible? Hey, I'm a fair-minded God. Let me show you what I'm going to judge you on. And he plays the recorder that's around their neck. And Schaefer says there's not one person on earth who will be able to pass that test. Nobody can live like they tell others to live. They don't have the, we don't have the strength to do it. People don't need more books telling them how to live. They need the power to do what they don't have the power to do right now. So the first thing Moses tells them is you're going to fail. And the gospel preachers have constantly, have to constantly bring people back to this and tell them what they know in their heart, but they won't admit it and they won't do it. Pretty striking, isn't it? You know what to do and you won't do it. You ever, you ever know anybody like that? <laughs> That's under this height or uh, this or, it's it's incredible isn't it it's very striking okay you'll never be able to pull yourself together okay that's the first future that Moses looks at in the second future however God has a plan to fix hearts and I see this this is the center of all the verses this is the center of of, uh, of chapter 30 in verses 2, 3, 4, and 5, Moses is basically predicting that they will be put into exile and God will bring them back. But when we get to verse 6, he says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Moses is bringing something out here that the Old Testament outlines and the New Testament gets very specific about. Jeremiah and Ezekiel call it the new covenant with new hearts. Paul in Romans 2.29, and, and I'm going to have to have that on the screen. I don't have that on the paper. Romans, there it is. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And in, in Philippians 3.3, 3, Paul says this, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. It says we, we are the true circumcision. Those who, are, who, are, who have been circumcised in the heart are the true circumcision of God. This is the gospel, and it's talking about, it's talking beyond anything that actually happens in the lives of the Israelites at this time. That's why back in Deuteronomy 24, 29 verse 4, you don't have to go back, but he's talking about God has not given you a heart yet to do these things. 
But in verse 6, he says, I'm going to give you a heart. I'm going to circumcise you heart, your heart. Okay. So what is a circumcised heart? Quickly, what's a heart? Most of us have heard expositors say over and over again that in, uh, uh, the heart is, is the seat of the emotions. But in the Bible, the word heart means the center of the whole being. It's not just your emotions, it's everything. Okay. Have you checked lately to see if you are conflicted about being a slave to the late modern culture in which emotions are the ultimate value? Feelings dominate. They dominate. So that when you read what the Bible says about the heart, you don't let modern understandings of what the heart means creep in and affect how you read the text. So don't read it emotionally. In other words, the way the, the, the modern culture tells you. Proverbs 3 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's what hearts do. They put their trust in something. You are going to put your trust in something. You and I are going to put our trust in something. Hearts, hearts face things. Okay? Jesus says, where your treasure is, there, there your heart is also. Your heart is the place where you decide what you're going to treasure. What your supreme good is what your ultimate hope is, what you're, you're going to face all day. Now, your, our religion is, is, uh, is what you do with Scripture, okay? It's the thing that the heart most cherishes, most, cherishes, most adores, most trusts in, most hopes in. The thing you, you look to most for your salvation is what your mind automatically goes to when you have nothing else to think about that's not easy to do today because of social media and cell phones. But solitude. What do you think about when you're alone? Is your career more important to you? Well, then there you go. Your heart is the thing you love most. What is it? What the heart most wants, the mind finds the most reasonable. The emotions find most desirable, and the will finds the most doable. What that means is the heart is set upon, what the heart is set upon affects your mind, your will, and emotions. That's what that means. It's pretty simple. It's the heart. So having said that, what does it mean to have a circumcised heart? It's a scary idea, isn't it? It's a strange metaphor. It means God is doing surgery on your heart. Okay? Other people think of it this way. Circumcision was an external sign that I am now coming into the covenant community and I am now making myself subject to the laws of God. But then heart circumcision would be the inner love motivation to do those things. Isn't that what verse 6 says? He's going to circumcise your heart so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. It says it right there. Now, there are such things as marriages in which uh, people tie the knot, but it's for legal or business purposes or, or political reasons. But when I, was, when I was falling in love with my wife and she asked me to make a change in my life, the sort of thing my mother or father would say to me and ask me to do and I'd just blow them off, well, she asked me. And I knew she'd be happier if I did it. It happened. You could almost say her wish was my command. 
suddenly I was in love. And I didn't think of it as obeying her, her will, but in a sense I was. She wasn't demanding, but out of love I was changing. I was changing. And here's what it means to have a circumcised heart. When you, what you ought to do and what you want to do become the same thing. That's a circumcised heart. That's a quick definition for a circumcised heart. 1 John 5, 3, one of my favorite verses, says this, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome to us. We love to keep his commandments. I love my wife. I love my children. I love my brothers and sisters in Christ. I love God. And I fail a lot. But I know my heart's circumcised. And he loves me. I know he loves me. That's the, that's the big deal. A line from one of John Newton's hymns says this, Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before. Pleasure and duty, opposite. Since we have seen his beauty, are joined, joined apart. No more. Okay. There we have it. Our pleasure and our duty are the same. That's a circumcised heart. So how does God do this? How does God circumcise a heart? So remember in, in Sunday school, somebody would ask you, or they'd mention circumcision, and you were this old, and, and they'd say, we'll have to tell you later, okay? We'll let you know later, okay? But now you're around 13 or, or 18 or 24 or 36, and the same thing comes up, and you want to know about their circumcision now, okay? It's the sign of the covenant. It's a relationship with God, okay? And, and this is, they finally tell you what it is. And they say, you know, what, what was your reaction? Do you remember anybody? I don't remember mine, but a lot of people say, you're kidding, right? You're kidding. Really? Why? Why couldn't God have asked for a tattoo or something? Okay. What is it? What's this about? Well, it's gross and it's bloody. And of course, that's the point. Okay. In the old days, the way we made a covenant was, you acted out the curse of the covenant, right? This still act. This is still how covenants is, is done. You cut an animal in, in half, and you walk between the pieces, and you say, "Oh, great Audrey, to whom I make my vow today, if I do not keep the promise of an Audreyanite, may I be cut to pieces like one of these animals." <laughs> I'm not. I'm not propagating that. I'm just taking advantage. That was a joke. <laughs> But, you know, whoever the pagan god, well, even the pagans would do this, okay? You see what this means? Circumcision is gory. It's gross. It's bloody. It's intimate. It's a creepy, okay? Why not some other part of the body? It's a way to show you and me the penalty of sin. It's the penalty of sin. Sin is so dire. It's so intimate. And sin is so gross. And the Bible keeps bringing this up, and it's in Colossians 2.11. Colossians 2.11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. It's talking about the cross. It doesn't just say when you become a Christian you get a new heart. It says you get a circumcised heart. It says you get a, a heart circumcised because of Christ. It's heart's Christ who's been circumcised that we get. Okay, what's, what, what's the circumcision of Christ? 
Most theologians would point to this, that on the cross, Jesus Christ was experiencing the penalty, the curse of the covenant, and was cut off for us. If you ever wrong somebody, what happens? You get cut off. It's always the penalty. You get cut off. But God says, if you disobey me, the penalty is to be cut off from me, to be cut off from life, from everything good. And on the cross, Jesus Christ was, you might say, getting the cosmic experience that we deserve. He was receiving the penalty for our sin. Another way to put this is in the Garden of Eden. Out goes Adam and Eve because of their sin. And who's put at the door? And a cherubim with a sword guarding the way back to the tree of life, which means the only way back into the tree of life is to go under the sword. And that's what Jesus did on the cross for us. And in that sense, he was circumcised. Because he experienced that circumcision, because Jesus Christ experienced that for us. By the way, when I put my faith in him, not only does that mean objectively, I have a relationship with him, but subjectively, when I see him doing that, that really, to me, makes my pleasure and my duty the same. That's what does it. He did it. Remember the, the Newton hymn? It goes on to say this about the, the beauty we see. To see the law of Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. If you're seeing what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you, taking your cosmic cutting off, if that moves you while anyone is preaching the gospel, if, if you say, I do deserve that to be cut off, and Jesus did that for me, you're experiencing the circumcision of the heart right there. So we don't have, actually, I think we're, we're close on, we're very close on, we're terribly close on time, we're over. We can't go into the third one, which is the, the gospel go forth. I wish I could speak faster. There's a lot of material. But I want to say the last thing is, this thing about blessings and curses, if you end up, if you or I end up in hell, it's because we deserve it. But if we receive God's blessing, there's no way we deserve it. There's not a chance. You, if you think like that, you, you, you've been listening to the world. Because the, the world tells you, the, the, the prosperity gospel tells you, you deserve those good things. God, if you do this, this, and this, God will give them to you. It's not true. It's a heresy. Those two should never, they're not parallel like that. They are not. We deserve what we are not getting because of Christ. That's mercy. To give us grace. Okay. And, and uh, it's made clear throughout the Bible. This is made clear. And it must be maintained as we think about the afterlife, about our life and the afterlife, and as we do the work of the ministry. So let's pray, y'all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that's so clear. Father, for the renewing of our minds in Christ, that we can grow in, in, in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. These are marvelous things, Lord. Bless the services now to, so we hear your, 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 your word to us, prepared by your servant, Lord, and, and, and given to us in grace and mercy. We receive it that way, Father, as your loving hand. We have eyes to see and ears to hear now, Lord. Help us to actually live with those 
as, as the most important things, the most precious things in our own lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.